Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this episode, Michael welcomes another member of the Restoring the Soul team for an opportunity for you to get to know them better. Today, we welcome Brian Becker. With over 10 years of working with individuals and couples, Brian specializes in counseling pastors, missionaries, and other Christian leaders. For 27 years, he served with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, in a variety of leadership capacities, primarily through Southeast Asia. He has also served with multiple ministries and currently trains graduate students at Denver Seminary. In today's conversation, Brian recounts the pivotal story in which a counselor exposed him to the reality of what was actually taking place in his marriage. As you will hear, this awakening reset the trajectory of his relationship with his wife and changed their lives forever. Consequently, learning and understanding his own story has served as the foundation of how he approaches his vocation as an intensive clinical soul care specialist. Brian has a deep love of entering the stories of people in many ways that move them towards restoration, healing, and wholeness. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. It is another Restoring the Soul podcast, and this time I am in the studio on the fourth floor of the West Jefferson Building, high above Eeny Meeny Sushi. And friends, the only reason I say that anymore is not because of a plug or any kind of uh, financial compensation, but now there are people that come to Restoring the Soul and they look out my window, and one of the first questions they ask me is, is that eeny meeny sushi off in the distance to the left? And it's just a delight to introduce people to that Asian delicacy. So speaking of East Asia, today in the studio live is Restoring the Soul's newest therapist and intensive counselor, Brian Becker. Brian, welcome. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be with you. And welcome to Restoring the Soul. Yeah, thanks. We've been doing this feature where uh, we have each of our therapists in a podcast episode or more, just so that people can get to know them. And uh, it's really, really been good to get to know you. We were just uh, talking in an informal meeting for an hour or so and getting to know you more. But um, 
The reason I made the East Asia reference is that you've spent a lot of time in that part of the world, and I'm interested in how you got to being a licensed professional counselor. So fill me in on some of that backstory. Sure. Um, yeah, my wife and I joined the uh, staff of Campus Crusade for Christ um, in 1998 and um, served with them and uh Worked over there for a number of years, doing a lot of different roles. But um, that would probably, you know, was the start of something significant for us to step towards a kind of the heart that God put on our heart for people. Um, but probably in the middle of that, probably four or five years into serving with them, um, my wife decided to pursue a counseling degree at um, CCU. Um, so in 1995, we were back here for a year, and probably in the middle of that year. Um, as we were both in group counseling, um, but also to attending a lot of classes with Larry Crabb, Dan Allender. The same counseling program I did? Yeah. Probably halfway through that year, my wife came to me and she says, I don't know if I can go back to Asia with you because it feels like you love ministry um, and you love Asia more than you do me. Wow. Um, and um, she said, I sat on the couch for three days straight. I don't know, but I definitely w felt like the words I've told people is like, I felt like somebody reached up and cut an umbilical cord and I was left there gasping for air. Wow. Um, did you, did you identify with that or kind of resist that idea? Um, I think I was just, I felt trapped because I didn't know what to do. I was finally seeing in my mind, some success in, 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 being in ministry and, and seeing success in that, but also to the sense of going, she, I'm missing something with her and where she's at and um, definitely not pursuing her the way she, she needs to be pursued. And so I think it resonated with me, but it also felt like I don't know what to do with this. And so I think that was the first dropping in point that something's not right that needs attending to in my heart, um, specifically in relationship with her, but also too in my relationship with my ministry and how I was living that out. And so you, you obviously read the book, The Seven Things to Do to Make Your Wife Feel More Important Than Ministry, and it was all good from there, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know there was such a book. So no, I just made it up. <laughs> what did you do? Um, you know, I, I think we just began to, you know, just follow input from people around us. And part of that was getting into counseling. Um, and I think probably, again, that was probably one of the most helpful things. Um, and I think I remember during that time, you know, the therapist that we, we saw, you know, um, yeah, and I'm not sure how to say this, but basically. Oh, you can go ahead and say the word. I know the story. So if there are young children in the car or in the vicinity, or if you were offended by, certain vernacular you may want to plug your ears for a minute because this this story is actually worth it yeah so we had been going to this counselor for a, a, a number of sessions and usually what would happen is he would either pick up and say something my wife would pick up and we'd kind of and i'd kind of go along for the ride which was not far from what typical for me to do and i just remember there was a session and i don't know if they we're in cahoots about this, but basically he leaned over and looked at me and goes, Brian, where do you want to go today? And neither of them said anything to me, what felt like 20 minutes. It might've been three or four, but that daunting therapeutic silence right. of you're, they're just waiting. Yeah. 
And so then at some point he just paused, looked at me with a kindness, but he, he just said, Brian, I'm just really aware of how much of an asshole you are right now. Wow. And I was just really taken aback again, just because nobody had ever called that out in me. Like, um, I was the nice guy. I was the guy that got along with everybody. And that was part of my story. I was the people pleaser. I was the entertainer. You know, I was the one that made people happy or comfortable. And so for her, him to name something like that, my relationship with my wife, that I was leaving her unattended and unpursued, um, yeah, just really impacted me. Like there was something that was named in that moment that I knew I needed to pay attention to. And I think that just began to awaken in me. Um, I'd say that was the beginning point of awakening. And that's felt like it's just continued to keep coming back up. The wow. idea of awakening and finding parts of myself that needed to be awakened and moved towards wholeness. So. Wow. And I, I know who that counselor is. And I just want to, uh, reiterate what you said is that he can be very 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 direct but also very kind and mm. incredibly tender but if i'm hearing you right it's almost like you needed your cage rattled because you're a peacekeeper yeah um, and you're an enneagram nine is that right uh yeah ish it nine ish yeah I'm, okay. I'm waiting for somebody to help me unpack why i just tested it as a six but ah okay could be because i'm in stress so yeah we'll uh we'll unpack that on a future <laughs> episode we'll we'll bring on an enneagram expert or something yeah but um so there's this peacekeeper part of you and the yeah. reason why he called you an asshole um is because you are not uh, you know, people often call Enneagram eights that if they're in your face and unhealthy. But he was saying that because in your peacekeeping, not having an opinion, having a voice and moving toward her, that that was as bad and uh, and unhealthy and relationally damaging as if you had been a bully and trying to, with your voice and your opinion, to to demand your way. Yeah. And that, as you said, that it took that to wake you up. Yeah, it was similar. Like when I had some feedback from you know a fellow coworker over um, in Asia that said, you know, I really like Brian, but I don't know where he stands on most things. He's like mm. he's like milk toast. Mm. And again, I go, yeah, I see that, but it just makes me really sad that that's the way people see me. Like that, this niceness isn't real. So let me just ask you this, um, and I really don't know the answer to this question because I've not spent maybe enough time with you or we've just not gone there. You said that it made you sad, but I could also see how it might feel very exposing, very shameful or embarrassing. And was that the case at first? And how long did that last? Yeah, I think both those events felt very exposing because I don't. I didn't know what to tell people. Do you know what I mean? If we weren't going back to Asia, why, why not? You know, if, you know, a leader says that about you, well, what am I supposed to do with it? You know what I mean? And how do I change this? And so I think there was very much, it, it feels like this constant theme of exposure um, in my life stories that, and sometimes I've said, sometimes it feels like God cruelly puts me in places of exposure, but, I think it's because he wants to bring healing to things that I've covered over. He wants to bring light into that. He wants to actually reveal things that I've hidden 
that are actually for his glory. And so I think there's a way that kind of understanding that I think my story has been one of that, of having to be exposed, but to receive in that the kindness, the grace, the balm of that, much like, you know, Peter being exposed in his denial of the Lord and allowing that to be a place of healing um, as well. I just want to qualify here that uh, that if anyone is thinking about maybe someday I'll come to restoring the soul, and you just heard the story of a counselor who said you are an asshole, and and we're talking about that that uh, that's not the first thing or probably rarely that that comes out of our mouths. But again, the context was that in your particular situation, you really needed to hear that to wake up. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you? Before you started to say, you know what, behind the embarrassment and the shame and even the sadness that this is what people experience, how long did it take you to say, I do have thoughts and opinions and convictions, and I I do have a voice that when people say, what do you think, instead of going, well, I, I don't know, or I'll do what you think, when did that happen? Yeah, I would say there was an event, you know, another event that came up, probably two events. One was a, a meeting where they asked us to write up a personal vision. Do you know what I mean? And I remembered, I thought, I can name our organization's vision. I can name our region, our part of the world division. I can't name, if you took me away from that, I don't know what my vision would be. And I remember God saying, Brian, I want you to spend some time thinking about this. If I pulled you out of this organization, if I just placed you in a thing, what would you be most passionate about? What would you move towards? And it began this this question of who am I supposed to be? Where, God, do you want to show up powerfully in me? How do you want to use me in the lives of others? And I think that's where some things begin to gel as I took an hour a week over a course of a year just to sit with some of those questions that I began to go, I think I want to move towards the care and and. And moving towards counseling. When you had been doing a lot of HR and kinds of things like that. Right. Yeah. And that was probably the second issue was I went through an intensive, a week-long leadership intensive um, with some people out of Dallas Seminary. Um, Bruce Edstrom, Dave Connie were people that just spoke into my lives. And again, waking me up to seeing there's something more I need to step towards in life. And so this theme of waking up and stepping up and then I think of the C.S. Lewis quote, you know, further up and further in, like it feels like that theme has always been kind of what he's been doing um, to me in that process. So I think the stepping up and in, you know, as I took a greater leadership role um, in our ministry, um, kind of overseeing a number of different um, missionaries, I began to see the d- deep need for people in their lives and deep need for leaders in their lives to go deeper, to awaken themselves maybe to some of the patterns and habits, the way their lives have been fragmented, what their story is that leads them to that fragmentation and how can they be moved towards wholeheartedness in a deeper way. So I think that began to awaken in me and began for me to make the choice, I think I need to do this and this is where I need to go. You know, and so there was kind of a, in a sense, stepping up and in, but also maybe stepping down and away from some of those leadership roles to be, go in deeper with leaders in a very specific way. So, so there was a there was a risk there of of leaving the field, leaving the familiarity, and not knowing you know what things would look like in the future. But 
your wife, Crystal, had gotten her counseling degree in 95, and then you sought out a counseling degree, and you went yeah. to Denver Seminary. Yeah, so 2005 to 2008, we are at Denver Seminary. And as you were there, did you feel a sense of uh, confirmation, or did it resonate that, wow, I am really wired for this? Yeah, it, it, to me, it was super excited. I just remember, you know, a lot of people in our ministry probably would see seminary as you know, a next step. But I just remember it took me 17 years to get to that. But I knew that I wanted to go when I had questions or something that was deep in my heart that I wanted to learn. And that was the question I really had. And I took it probably into every class is how do people actually change? Do you mean, and whether that was an Old Testament survey or do you know, I mean, a group's therapy class, like what's really going on here? And so to me, it, most times, it, you know, there's no perfect class, but it felt like there was just this excitement and I'm actually getting to learn about the things that I'm, I'm passionate about and get to see all these different pieces that how do they all fit together? I've often said that, well, I've told my students this at Denver Seminary and in other contexts as well, that uh, if you graduate with a master's in counseling and apart from any tests that you take, the national exam or an individual class, if you can't write one page of a coherent explanation of how people change, that you have no business actually calling yourself uh, a counselor, and especially for Christians. Yeah. So putting you on the spot, drum roll, uh, as you left seminary, and I'm sure the question is going to be answered differently today, but as you left seminary, how would you have answered the question, how do people change? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, I left at the time because I think I was drinking from so many different faucets that I, I didn't know how to answer that question. I remember meeting with a supervisor that said, you know, one of the – if we were to continue in the supervision relationship, his goal would be to help me understand kind of this meta therapy. Like what's this thing that you can hang all your hats on? And I go, oh, I so want to do that. And I think that began even after I graduated. I go, I don't know what that is, but I need to start figuring that out. And I think the thing that really resonated more and more was just this issue of our story, of understanding our story deeply from the attachment issues in our stories to the the, the schemas, the false selves that are birthed out of our stories and how that plays out into whether it's relational dysfunction, vocational dysfunction, all those things play out in a significant way in that. And so I think that's been the story of me. my work has been probably learning and understanding my story, the themes of those stories, how I've survived them in some ways, but also too how I need to let go of some of those survival strategies to enter into who God's really truly creating me to be. I love that. So would you agree or disagree? And because you work at Restoring the Soul now, you actually can't disagree. So I'm going to just kind of whisper <laughs> that to you. So, you know, there's a right answer here. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, really, I just want to hear your thoughts. But that, as you talked about pressing into your story, uh, that was an essential piece of being able to sit down and hear other people's stories. Would you say that there's a, a cause and effect there that, you know, to the degree that you press into your own story and experience wholeness and healing, that's the degree to which you can do it with others? Yeah, I, I think, you know, 
Brene Brown has a quote, and I, I probably won't get this right, but it's something like that if you don't enter into your story, you're going to stand on the outside trying to hustle to gain worthiness. Um, do you know what I mean? And I think there is a sense of that, that my life was about hustling to get worthiness because I didn't know my own story. I didn't know kind of the things in my story, the glory of my own story, the delight of God in my own story. And I think those are the things that I keep pressing into. And so I think the more I understand my own story, I make sure and not read that into somebody else's story. But also, too, I think I become more aware or adept at picking up the pieces and the themes that go on, on in that process. And so I think both are n vital and necessary, um, you know, for us all to be engaging what, what's going on on that level, um, to press into our own story, to know it. Um. So it goes without saying, you've done a lot of your own work, both individually and, you know, trying to have the healthiest marriage. And I remember when we were first talking about you coming here, uh, you mentioned that you're part of a group now that as a participant, and I just think this is so healthy. I try to do this as well, but where you actually do story work and, mm -hmm. and, uh, engaging in one another's stories, but also learning about this, this idea of narrative therapy. Uh, you know, there's, uh, a whole bunch of secular folks that have written about this and developed narrative therapy as a framework. But Dan Alder is one of the people who, as a Christian, has, has taken that and, I'm always struck by, uh, you know, story, 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 and narrative. It sounds like a very modern idea. Yeah. But uh, Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author uh, and perfecter of our faith, but that he is writing a story, that we have a story, and that we get to, by doing this kind of work, uh, co-create our story. Yeah. Tell me about just what it's been like to be immersed in that uh, even now at this stage, because your your eyes become different and your heart is able to receive more and more than you would have, you know, 11 or 12 years ago. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And, um, yeah, I'm part of a group that's led by uh, uh, therapist Amy Al here and there. And it's just been a great group. Like, it's just one of those places to have to go back to tell stories. And sometimes they're small stories. They're not big events of trauma. But there's just stories and have other people listen to them and speak into them and say what they see. And again, it allows me to have new eyes to see myself. And usually it's new eyes of compassion. Um, I don't hold my story well. There's a lot of self-deprecation, a lot of beating myself up in that. And so to receive the kindness of others in that space is a huge gift. And so I think that's where the story gets reframed or retold. Um, just with a more truthful telling from the eyes of God. And so I think biblically, I look at the story. I, I think it really has dawned on me these last few years. We have the stories in the New Testament because the disciples told those stories about themselves. Mm. And that's where you go. We know how silly Peter was because Peter told those stories about himself and he replicated those. And so there was something about the freedom that Peter had to tell those stories freely that gives us the hope that, that there was places where he was one moment, you know, saying the right thing, the next moment saying something really stupid. And those stories were collected a lot. And that's what drew, you know, whether that was Luke, whether that was the other authors, they were drawing from those oral stories that they were telling about themselves because they had made peace with it. And they had known this is the story of God in my life and how he's bringing redemption in that. 
And, you know, what would we do without those kinds of human stories of, of fallibility and, and uh, failure and flawedness? Wow, three Fs there. Um, and and basically just stories of brokenness. The, the New Testament wouldn't have the same level of hope. It would just be, you know, teaching that's yeah. didactic and, and, and something. Harder. Yeah, yeah, something to aspire to. You know, as the as the first pope, as the Catholics would say, uh, but as someone upon who Jesus said, uh, your name is no longer uh, Simon, but it's Cephas, Peter, Rock, and I'm going to build my church upon you, not just trying to be cute, but, you know, he, he could have put an edict out for all of the church saying, you know, no unflattering stories, uh, and I get final edit on everything, yeah. but he didn't, presumably. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's a lot worse, and he cut those out. But, you know, walking on water and then not having faith and sinking, and Jesus saying, you of little faith, and mm-hmm. denying Jesus three times and, and being impulsive and uh, presumptive and not having his feet washed. I've done a lot of teaching around that in, in John 13. Uh, there's the Last Supper. Jesus gets up, takes off his towel, and he goes around the circle it's to Peter, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And I think that that, that moment was Jesus' kindness, mm. preparing him for the denial. Mm. So he had to learn how to receive. He had to learn how to, you know, let Jesus into this vulnerable part of him. Uh, so when he denies Jesus, he weeps bitterly, and he can later receive love. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Whereas Judas betrays Jesus, and we don't know of any instance where he was put in a position where he had to receive in order for uh, for there to be some kind of transformation. And, of course, he hung himself like, I've got to earn this somehow. But speaking of kindness, you kind of answered the question at level two, narrative and owning and knowing their story is step one, but but level two or step two is that it's really kindness and being in a space and opening yourself to that. Because you said the parts of the story where you need kindness or where there has not been kindness, that's what begins to reshape us and to transform us and even rewire our brains. So talk about that uh, as part of this change process. Yeah, I think, again, um, and my friends would know this about me. Do you know what I mean? It's not easy for me to be uh, kind to myself. I, I can pretty easily self-deprecate. I can easily take a compliment and, and turn it around um, on its toe. And so I think the, the journey has been and continues to be just receiving the kindness of the Lord to just, again, to – to say there's something really good in me, um, much like C.S. Lewis says, there's a glory there that if we saw the fullness of it, we'd be inclined to worship it in each other. You know, the beautiful thing about that is that saying there's a glory in me is actually one of the most humble things that we can do mm. because it's truth-telling. And humility is about seeing ourselves accurately Mm. Um, I like the definition we always say around here that humility is being precisely who you are, 
with God and at least one other person, Thomas Merton, as opposed to making yourself less, thinking of yourself less, etc. And so if if we're glorious, then that's humility to say that. If we're brilliant, that's humility. No, we don't go around flaunting that. But it's pride to say, I suck. I'm a terrible person. Yeah. There's nothing in my heart other than wickedness. And that's pride because it's the refusal to accept the truth of grace and that all of life is a gift. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Back to your story, and we'll do a future episode on how people change, and that will tend into maybe a podcast in and of itself. Mm. You spent a total of 27 years, if I can mention the name of the ministry, Campus Crusade. Yeah. You are really a veteran of that ministry, and deeply, deeply shaped you. But after you got your counseling degree, you went back to working in East Asia, but then you find yourself back here. Yeah. And tell me about that transition. Yeah. So one of the things, my last kind of role with, uh, with crew as they changed names, um, was to do leadership development intensives, uh, for the leaders there. Um, and again, those were team-based kind of coaching, um, kind of intensives, but they tended to go pretty deep into story as well as kind of understanding the dynamics of the soul. And so when we came back, um, from overseas in 2013, we were with crew for another two years, but then I really sensed this desire to kind of press in and press deeper in to my counseling practice. And so that required us to leave staff. And so kind of since then have done this balance of private practice counseling as well as intensives with another ministry here in town. Um, but also to traveling to do kind of missionary intensives with crew and some other organizations. And so, um, that's kind of been where I've just continued to press into, um, kind of again, b- both the ideas of story work, but also working with, um, people in ministry, but also marriages in crisis, um, kind of done a variety of things in those arenas. So. So couples and individuals you work with. Yes. And you really love sitting with people uh, who have been in some kind of full-time ministry because uh, you know the dynamics of that, both in the people-to-people, hands-on ministering, and but also in this kind of admin and leadership higher level of human resources, which, I mean, you you talked to me about what that involved, and it was like soup to nuts of, you know, knowing where the band-aids are when people get cut mm-hmm. and, and writing or uh, creating teams to put together manuals and, and things like that. Yeah. Pretty broad background in that regard. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, was probably overseeing, you know, maybe 800 staff in 10 different regions with people from 10 different countries um, that were sent to kind of where we worked. And so it was a pretty broad, you know, it's kind of one of those things, which is typical in a lot of ministries is, you have absolutely no training for it, but here, why don't you try yourself at this role and kind of grow into it? So most things was on the job training in that process to, to learn those things. And so it was definitely at times fast and furious um, type of learning. So let's end with this. And we did not prepare for this question. The ministry that you worked here with locally, they do intensive programs. And I, I know that ministry going back to their beginning and I have a lot of respect for the organization, and I know uh, several of the counselors there, including uh, Dr. Tom Varney, my former mentor at Colorado Christian and the man who hired me and uh, made me a professor. Um, but 
you transitioned out of that ministry to restoring the soul. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, graduate school, for example, you take a whole bunch of courses, different perspectives. There's even a class called integration, where it's a class that doesn't say, here's here's an integration of your faith in these theories, but here's different theories and approaches to integration. And then people will graduate and they go, now I've got to figure out how to bring this all together. And the ministry that you were with before, again, they, they do really good work. I know people have gone through it. And yet there's not a, uh, a cohesive vision or model. Uh, and one of the things about restoring the soul is that we do have this cohesive vision where we've taken a lot of different theories and said, here's what we do. Uh, here's what we believe, and here's how we sit with people. And so, you know, if there's a, a restaurant that has some Italian dishes and some Chinese dishes and some Swedish meatballs and American hot dogs and burgers, we are saying we don't have a little bit of everything. We have this specific kind of food. Let's just say northern Italian cuisine, which is different than uh, all of Italy or southern Italian. And some people would say, oh, that's kind of arrogant to presume that you have, you know, the way. And I personally don't believe that it is the way, but it's a way that's emerged out of my story. We call that here intensive clinical soul care, ICSC. My question after this long rambling uh, explanation is what has it been like to go from, uh, you know, being able to operate independently but not within a cohesive model to being here and with all of your experience and with all of your training and that's you know very high level to come and to be a part of this um, to contribute to offer but also to learn yeah i think it's been a a great opportunity and that's what you know as i talk to um that ministry, Dave Regzale and, and Rosa Huber that were leader there, I, you know, I just felt like they gave me a great opportunity to step into something that I wanted to do, which was work more deeply with people in ministry. But I also felt like there was, a, a, again, an assumption that I know everything that I need to know. And so I think the thing that was appealing about stepping into this was take what I do have, what I can contribute here, but also to, to learn from kind of like what's some lane lines, what's some places to go deeper, especially when you look at some of the, you know, difficult people that you see here at, um, uh, not difficult people, but difficult problems that they're facing, uh, here at restoring the soul. I think there's just a need for me to continue to step up and then. And you're, um, you're just talking about the staff and the counselors, right? The difficult people <laughs> with difficult problems. <laughs> Just the leader. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that feels to me like the thing that was really appealing about this is there's just a – there's something – like I always say, I have a stick figure diagram of what a three-dimensional real living object is. And so my ideas about how people f change always feel like that, that there's something more to add to this. There's something deeper to flesh this out to put more – um, depth to it. And so I think there's something appealing about being on this 
team, the, the amount of effort you go to communicate and work with each other and um, develop each other, learn from each other, I think that's something that's really appealing to me. And again, it feels like a place where I can contribute, but also to a very much a place where I'm going to continue to learn and step into that ever deepening way. So, Well, and I'm thankful that just in the short time you've been here that you you have brought a lot to the team meetings and perspectives, and we've even sat together, you know, you with all of your experience, but new to this particular approach of intensive clinical soul care, you know, it's not a huge shift for you because you're kind of wired that way. And so it's less about you learning how to do this and more about you bringing who you are, which kind of does it anyway, and then learning how to integrate all of it. Uh, so it's just, it's really been great. And I'm particularly excited for, uh, you know, the, the, the faces that I can't see in my mind, the marriages that, you know, we don't know their names or where they're from, but people that God's going to bring here, uh, for you to, to really dive in, uh, to working with pastors, ministers, missionaries, parachurch workers, and folks in ministries of all kinds. So welcome to you. And, uh, thanks for, for being here today. Yeah. I would just say just, you know, this metaphor that God's put on my heart the number of years is this idea of a table. And there's a sense of, for me personally, how do I bring more of myself fully to that table? The second is to always invite people to a place of the table, that there's always a place for all of you. Um, I think that phrase, all of me welcomes all of you. And I think that's a, a words that resonate with me. And again, an invitation in that picture of the table. And it feels like such a healing place in scripture um, for me. So. So one final thing, and I'm deadly serious when I make this request, you are fluent in Mandarin Chinese after all that time yeah, there. Fluent's a sketchy word. So. Well, let's, <laughs> let's say fluent to our listeners. And we do have many listeners across uh, East Asia, and there are you know, several countries, including Taiwan and Hong Kong, that, that speak Chinese, but you happen to speak Mandarin Chinese. Will you say in Mandarin, restoring the soul is awesome? Or as a close approximation as you can get. I'm sure you're going to get comments on this that my Chinese actually sucks, but we'll just go ahead. Uh, so we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.